Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as we continue our series on this dynamic book, The Forecast for the Future, looking at the second message. By the way, I do want to let you know you can go online and uh, listen to the Wednesday night opening introduction that I did to this book. So uh, just go on our church website. And you'll find that information there. And then uh, secondly, I do want to mention, I know Kevin made reference to the Sunday night series beginning soon on American history. Uh, You don't want to miss that six-week series that we will do uh, beginning very soon. And in that series, we'll look at some of the primary sources, not, not secondary sources, but some of the primary sources, what our founding fathers actually said in their speeches and what they wrote in their uh, documents. Uh, For example, you probably didn't realize that the state of Virginia, for instance, and not just the state of Virginia, many other states as well, but in their first state charter, uh, the residents of uh, Virginia and the founding fathers of Virginia said one of the reasons that we're going to exist as the state of Virginia is we're going to be a mission station for the propagation of the Christian gospel. You didn't realize they, you're not told that, are you? And uh, we're going to look at many other things of that nature. Uh, we don't read in history books today. Beginning in about 1930, uh, some of the primary writers of history were secularists and humanists. Uh, some of them uh, stated atheists or agnostics and All the references to supernatural and God and Christianity taken out. And most of the historians since then have followed suit with them. But we'll look at some of the earlier writings uh, surrounding the founding of our country. And uh, you don't want to miss that. So come out and be a part of that on Sunday nights at 6 p.m. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? I want to begin the messages to the seven churches with the church at Ephesus. And uh, the subject matter this morning, returning to your first love. Jesus said to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you've not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. Father, we thank you today for your love for the church. We know that we are called the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And you told Simon Peter that you would build your church and the gates of hell 
would not prevail against it. Lord, we know that as we look at the church today, we see many scars and warts. We see many shortcomings. And it's a reminder to us how desperately we need to walk in fellowship with you. God, we pray that you would strengthen the church and our witness and our mission efforts. That you would help us as we are a lampstand. We're not the light, but we bear witness to the light. We're a reflection of your light. And I pray that we would be found faithful. Lord, you say here that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And I pray that we would be all ears, that we would listen for your still small voice. And God, that we would not be merely hearers, but as James says, that we would be doers of the word. Lord, speak to us through this series. As we look at the book of Revelation, one thing that we will see unmistakably, and that is the exalted, glorified Lord Jesus. That history is His story. And you are directing things according to your sovereign will and purposes. And Father, we find a great deal of comfort in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In her book, A Vision of His Glory, Anne Graham Lotz, the daughter of Dr. Billy Graham, shares a story that happened to her and her family when she was young and growing up in their home there in Montreat, North Carolina. Now obviously if you were a member of the Graham family it would not be hard to realize that on many different occasions the media would call wanting to come around and conduct an interview. Anne said on one such occasion The media called and they wanted to do an interview with the entire Graham family and they wanted to do some family photographs. And so when her parents hung up from talking on the phone and making all the arrangements, Ruth Graham went into high gear cleaning up and got all the kids involved in cleaning up. And they were scrubbing the floors and vacuuming and polishing all the furniture and cleaning windows and getting everything perfect for the day of the interview. Well, finally the day of the interview arrived and all the news crews, they pulled up in the driveway. They brought their cameras in and all their mics. Uh, Ann said that there were microphone cables and video camera cables going everywhere, littering the floor, and they got everything in place and seated all of the family members exactly the way they wanted them for the interview. And then the producer gave the command for the lights to come on, and Ann said all these bright television lights came on, and as they did... Ruth Graham suddenly became horrified. You see, the house that looked so spotless under normal lighting wasn't nearly as spotless under bright lights. There were cobwebs and dust bunnies everywhere, and Ruth panicked. 
Well, folks, what we're going to notice in Revelation 2 and 3 is that the Lord Jesus shines his spotlight onto the church. Now, as we look at these letters to the churches, I want us to understand that as we see the church today, we see many different kinds. There are Anglo churches and ethnic churches, and then churches that are racially blended. We see poor churches and rich churches, conservative churches, liberal churches, traditional churches, contemporary churches. There are, there are about as many different kinds of churches today as there are cereal brands on the cereal aisle of the local supermarket. Well, what does Christ think of his church? After all, it's his church, and we are the bride of Christ, and, and he loves his bride. And as he said to Simon Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so what does he see as he looks at the church? And by the way, as we talk about the church, let's be reminded of who the church is. We are the church. The church is not bricks and mortar. The church is the people of God. Those who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We make up the redeemed. We make up those who are bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so when we talk about the church and the state of the church, let's keep in mind we're talking about us. Well, it's important for you to see that many scholars believe chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation serve as point number 2 under that outline John gave back in chapter 1 verse 19. Remember back in 19 of chapter 1, John was told to write the things that he had seen. That would be the vision of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. And then he was told to write the things that are. Scholars believe that's a reference to the church age, what we find being described in chapters 2 and 3. And then John was told to write the things that would take place after this. That would be from chapter 4 to the end of the book. Now folks, that means that most of the book of Revelation describes future events. That also means that our passage this morning begins that second division of Revelation 1.19. The things that are would be everything that happens during the church age. And that would also mean that chapters 2 and 3 apply to us in a very unique way because we're a part of the church age. Now personally, I find a great deal of merit in looking at the book of Revelation that way. But now that raises another question. Why did Jesus address seven churches? Why not five churches? Why not 15 churches? Well, as you know, in the Bible, oftentimes seven is seen as a number of completion. Obviously, there were many more than seven churches in Asia Minor. That would be modern-day Turkey. Many more than seven churches, and yet, the Lord chose seven to address. Now, very naturally speaking, these seven churches would have been 
on the postman's route as he delivered mail in Asia Minor. You would go from Ephesus to Smyrna and so forth and so on on the delivery route until you came to Laodicea. And so a very natural progression here. But that's not all you need to know. As we look at these seven, these seven churches are dealing with things that churches all down through the ages deal with. Churches deal with theological issues, moral issues, social issues. We also deal with our own heart issues as we seek to live out our faith in the Lord Jesus. And so I think it would be fair to say if you were to take the millions and millions of churches on planet earth today and look at each church individually and the challenges that they face, you could probably categorize challenges in one of these seven areas that we'll look at. I'm not saying churches only deal with seven areas, but I'm saying if, as you think of all the hundreds, maybe even thousands of issues churches deal with, you could probably group them together in about seven different areas. Now one more interpretive issue I want you to understand before we begin. And this is one I am open to and yet somewhat skeptical of at the same time. The dispensational interpreters of the book of Revelation tell us that each of the seven churches of Asia Minor stand for a particular period in church history. For example, they would say that the church at Ephesus was representative of the apostolic church. And they would put a date on that from about 30 A.D. to about 98 A.D. or maybe 100 A.D. And they would call that the apostolic church age and they would say the church at Ephesus describes that particular period. Likewise, they would say, we today are in the Laodicean uh, period of church history and they would assign a date to that of approximately from 1900 A.D. Uh, to the current time. Now, while agreeing with a great deal of their interpretations of the book of Revelation, I've never been totally sold on that scheme, as also many of them are not. I think we have to be very careful of saying more than the Bible itself says. The Bible itself doesn't tell us. By the way, the Laodicean church age is going to begin in 1900 and continue on until the end. doesn't say that. Well, another uh, reservation I have about that scheme of interpretation is that... Uh, in every church period, you will see representatives of all of these type of churches. Not a doubt in my mind today we could travel around Cabarrus County and we could find some congregations that would be very much akin to what we'll see this morning in the letter to the church at Ephesus. We could see other congregations that maybe the letter to Sardis would fit, fit them. Other congregations that maybe the letter to Philadelphia would fit them and so forth and so on. And in, so, in, in every single church age you would see churches that would fit any one of these seven. Now granted, I want to be honest, these interpreters 
would, would admit to that also. They would agree with that. Well, I would, I would go even further. I would say within one single congregation, you might have some believers that the letter to Ephesus would really fit them. The letter to Sardis would really fit them. The letter to Philadelphia would really fit them. The letter to Laodicea would fit them. And so in one single congregation, you could find the challenges to all seven letters fitting members of that one church. Well, if their scheme is true though, I do want you to realize this. If we are in the Laodicean church period, some special challenges face us. Because the Laodicean church said, we're rich, we don't really have need of anything. They didn't see their utter need of dependence upon the Lord. And the Lord saw them in quite a different way. And the Lord said, you don't realize that you're blind and naked and poor. And so we need to realize if this is the Laodicean church age, we need to be very careful that we don't see ourselves as self-sufficient, not needing the Lord. Amen? Well, we're going to see a common pattern in each of these letters. First of all, each letter first identifies the church and its location. Secondly, each letter is addressed to an angel of the church. And in the introduction that I covered, I said uh, the word can refer either to a heavenly angel signifying that maybe every congregation has a guardian angel or it can also refer to a human messenger such as the pastor of the church. There's a description of Christ that is given to each church. Each description of Jesus picks up on a characteristic that John saw back in chapter 1. There's the statement that Christ is intimately aware of what is going on in each church. There's a commendation of what is right in that particular fellowship. There is a condemnation of what is wrong in that fellowship. There is a correction or a challenge that is given. There is both a promise and a warning based on what the church does with the council. And finally, there is a plea from Christ that each church would hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So that's a common pattern we'll see in each of the seven letters. Now with that said, we'll notice this morning the first church, the, the church at Ephesus, the loveless church. And Jesus' challenge to them. And what we're going to see here is that if everything else is in place in the church and yet our devotion to the person of Christ is waning, we come up short and we're in need of radical change. Folks, no amount of labor, no amount of effort, no amount of ministry that we do with our hands can be a substitute for loss of love that we might feel in our hearts to the person of Christ. First thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the church. Again, the church at Ephesus. Verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, Ephesus was a very cosmopolitan city. It was the most important city of Asia Minor. It boasted of a population of about a quarter million people. 
Now, I would assume most of us just got through about a month or so ago of watching the Summer Olympics from London. Now, every year in Ephesus, they had something very much akin to our Olympics. It was also a great commercial uh, city. Ephesus was an inland city about three miles from the sea, but the mouth of the Caister River allowed access and provided for the best harbor in Asia Minor. Four great trade routes went through Ephesus, and so between the harbor and the highways, it became known as the gateway into Asia. It was also referred to as the Vanity Fair of Asia. Ephesus was also a religious center. It was the center of the worship of Artemis. Artemis to the Greeks, Diana to the Romans. The temple to Artemis or Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It stood in an area that was 425 feet by 220 feet. There were 126 pillars of marble in the temple. Each of them were 60 feet tall and 36 of them were overlaid with gold and jewels. Now the book of Acts tells us that during Paul's third missionary journey he taught in Ephesus for two years and according to verse 10 of Acts 19 Paul had a great deal of success in Ephesus from the hand of the Lord. In fact, so much success in preaching the gospel in Ephesus that you'll recall he, he stirred up quite a mob. Because the craftsmen there did special things from, for the idols and the temple there to Diana. And when Paul began preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and people began turning away from the worship of Diana and away from idols associated with that to the worship of the true and the living God, many of those businessmen in the city saw their, their prospects for economic prosperity go down the drain as people didn't want their idols anymore. And so the preaching of the gospel called, caused quite a stir. Now, altogether, Paul was in Ephesus for three years. Timothy, Tychicus, and the Apostle John all served this church. Other prominent New Testament names that had some ministry in Ephesus would be Aquila and Priscilla as well as Apollos. It's the only church that had two apostles right to it. Uh, both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. Now, as we're introduced to this church, we notice that Christ holds the churches in his right hand. The thought there is of control. He's Lord of the church. And then we see him walking in the midst of the church. And the idea is of intensive watch care. He knows every need we have, every temptation we face, and every decision that we wrestle with. Folks, the Bible assures us that Jesus is very much with us. Aren't you glad of that? 
Jesus said in John 16, I am not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. When I return to the Father, I will send another of like nature and essence as myself, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and he will be your teacher, your comforter, and your helper. And it's comforting to us to know, very encouraging for us to know, that there is nothing we go through in all of life that Christ is not right here with the believer. You might have lost a loved one. You may be facing a financial crisis. You may have some major decision facing you as a family. And I'm here to tell you, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no element of your life that is outside of His watch care. In fact, Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. He's with you. You can be going through the deepest trial. You can be walking through the the darkest valley. And Christ is right there with you. You're not alone in life. And also he said in the church wherever two or three are gathered together in his name. He's right here in our midst. And so we need to be cognizant of that. That serves either as a warning to us or an encouragement to us. If some believer in their life is persisting in some act of disobedience, it ought to be a warning to them that God can get a hold of you and discipline you. Likewise, it's an encouragement to you. If you're living for the Lord, you're not doing so in your own strength. He's there to help you. Everything we face, the Lord is right here and He holds us in the grasp of His hand. You're never alone. You're never by yourself. As Jesus said, a a warning because every idle word that we speak, He knows all about it and we're going to have to give an account of it one day. So He's here. Well, second thing I want you to notice is the commendation. Look at verse 2. He said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary. First of all, we could say about them that they were a working church. Some churches are working churches. They labor for the Lord. They build children's programs and and music programs and youth programs and men's and women's programs. and, And they work tirelessly in the Lord's vineyard. And that's the word here that at Ephesus they labored. The word that is used here is they labored to the very point of exhaustion. They were a laboring church. Some folks describe us that way. Some new members come in, they get involved in ministry, and they come back to us and say, Wow, I didn't realize the hundreds of volunteers it takes every week to just that goes into the ministry here. And all the time and the effort. And they come to that realization. We need more laborers. We need more workers. If we had more laborers, maybe some of the laborers we have could sit down every now and then and take a little bit of a breather. 
But at Ephesus, they were a laboring church. And men will labor for a lot of reasons. They will labor for money. They will labor for fame. They will labor to get a certificate or some kind of diploma. But at Ephesus, he says, you have labored for me. You've worked for me. And I recognize that. God recognizes our labor that's done for him. In fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus said, I tell you what, if you've even given a cup of cold water to somebody in my name, you'll not lose your reward. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Know this, that we're to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our work in the Lord is never in vain. Nothing you do for Jesus Christ is in vain. Now, folks, if we step back and looked at our lives honestly, I think we'd have to admit that a lot of our energy and resources and time goes into things of no eternal value whatsoever. But anything we do for the Lord has eternal value. And Jesus notices. Paul said to the Corinthians that we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and in that day some believers, their work will be like wood, hay, and stubble and it'll be burned up yet they'll be saved as through fire. Others will stand there and their work will be like gold and silver and it'll last and they'll receive the reward. Are you laboring for the Lord? That was one of the positive things he said about them at Ephesus. That was a commendation. Now not only were they a a working church, but I want you to notice secondly about this, that they were a discerning church. 1 John 4 tells us that we are to discern the spirits because not everybody who comes to us in Jesus' name is truly a believer. You have to be careful. And at Ephesus, they were a discerning church. He said, you have tested those who claim to be apostles and they are not. You have found them liars. Now we know an apostle was somebody who had had witnessed the earthly ministry of Jesus. In his death, burial, and resurrection, they'd seen the resurrected Christ. That's why Paul referred to himself as an apostle born out of due time. He recognized there was a little bit of difference between him and the original twelve, yet he was still an apostle because though he was an unbeliever during the earthly ministry of Jesus, nonetheless he was was around Jerusalem. He witnessed those events. He was present later on during the stoning of Stephen. And then on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Lord appeared to Paul and and he saw Jesus. And so he could refer to himself as an apostle born out of due time. But as I've told you before, according to the New Testament definition of an apostle, there are no apostles living today on earth. You drive through little country towns and you'll see a church sign and it says the pastor is... Apostle Jones or Apostle Smith or somebody. There are no apostles today. And he says you've tested those who say they're apostles and found them to not be genuine. In verse 6 he says 
you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we're going to look at the Nicolaitans, who they were and what they believed in another letter. But just suffice it to say for now, not only had they tested those who claimed to be apostles and found them not, but they had also turned against the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So uh, they were a very discerning congregation. And it's certainly a lesson to us today that while we are accepting of all, welcoming of, of, of anybody to come and hear the gospel, we are not to approve of sin. You realize, you realize there are churches today, there are pastors in the pulpit of America today that have even said publicly they will not preach on sin anymore. I think of one, national pre, one, one nationally known preacher Probably 30,000 people literally in his congregation this morning and on an interview, a live interview on TV, when asked if he would preach on sin, he said he didn't do that. People feel bad enough about their lives already. But do you know what? If we don't realize that we're sinners, then we don't realize that we need a Savior, right? They were a discerning church at Ephesus. Not only a working church and a discerning church, but also you'll notice they were an enduring church. He said, you've borne up patiently, you've experienced trials for me, and you've borne up patiently and you've not grown weary. The Bible says we will go through trial and tribulation as believers. We are not exempt from trial and tribulation. As believers, we need to understand, ladies and gentlemen, we are part of a fallen world. In the trials and tribulation, the disease and death and everything else unbelievers face, guess what? Believers face some of those same trials. But the difference is how we go through them. James 1, 2 says we're to even consider it all joy when we go through trials knowing what God is doing in the long run in our lives. James says we go through various trials of all sorts. Trials come in all different shapes and sizes and he uses a Greek word there from which we get our word polka dot. All trials are not the same. The trial you face may not be just like the trial I face. All different sizes and shapes and colors that our trials uh, come to us packaged in. And we don't go out looking for them. James says when you fall into them, and it's the same word that's used in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan about the guy who was traveling down to Jericho and fell among thieves. He didn't mean to fall among thieves that day. It just happened. We don't go out looking for trials. They just come to us. And trials had come to the congregation at Ephesus. And Jesus says, nonetheless, you've borne up underneath them. And you've not grown weary. You've not denied me. You've patiently endured. The word is hupomene. It's a, it's a word for patience to bear up. You're not exempt from the trial, but you bear up under it. And even in the midst of it, you're able to glorify God. They had done that at Ephesus. Now folks, would Jesus be able to look at your life and my life and the life of our church and commend us along the same lines? Would he say... You're a working believer. 
laboring for Him, you're discerning, and you're enduring. Would He say that about you? Could that be on, the, on your gravestone? Would He say that about our church? What a wonderful commendation he gives to him. The third thing I want you to notice, he moves along in verse 4 to give the condemnation. In verse 4 he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. On the surface everything looks so nice and neat at Ephesus. But underneath, at the level of the heart, where men don't see, men don't notice, but God sees. The Lord says you've left your first love. It's a strong word. It means to abandon or to leave. It not just simply lost, but it's a deliberate departure. In fact, it was a word sometimes used of divorce. He says you've left your first love. The furnace was still there, but the fire has gone out. The folks at Ephesus were laboring, but love wasn't the motivation. Do you realize that everything we do for Christ, love has got to be the motivation? Turn with me back to the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, beginning in verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. You see what he's saying? The motive for everything we do has to be love. The Lord not only measures our labor, He measures our love. Is our labor a labor of love? They had gotten so busy at Ephesus and so active that somewhere along the line, they were simply going through the motions. And Jesus said, you've taken a great fall. Israel was a great example of this in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 2, God says to them, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and you followed me through the desert. The picture there was one of young love after they left Egypt. But then in verse 5, Jeremiah, or God through Jeremiah says, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? And so the image goes from young love to a love that's grown cold and is looking elsewhere. And so at Ephesus, all of their work for the Lord had just become duty. They were doing nothing more than going through the motions. And I want to say to you, if that describes you in your Christian walk, something is deeply wrong at the very core of your faith. Can't you just hear it now? Oh, it's Sunday. Let me drag in there and teach that Sunday school lesson. I'd rather be at the lake or the mountains, but just let me get this over with and do my duty. Let me get up there and sing in that choir. I'd rather not, but let me go through one more week. Oh, I guess I need to do my quiet time today. It's something a Christian is supposed to do. 
Does that describe you this morning? You're just going through your Christian life and you're really doing nothing more than just checking off the blocks. That's all. You're just checking off the blocks. That's what they were doing at Ephesus. The writer of Hebrews asked though, he says, What's going to become of us if we neglect so great a salvation? They loved the work of God. They hated sin with a passion. But with all of that said and done, their good works were no substitute for the loss of love they had in their hearts for the person of Christ. Folks, there are a lot of people today that think Christianity is just a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with, I don't go with girls who do. It's not that don'ts don't matter. After all, God gives us the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, we find things we're not supposed to do. But the heart is supposed to be at the center of it all. You see, if He has my heart, He's got my hands. He can have my hands without having my heart. But if He's got my heart, He's got my hands. And that's why Jesus said in John 15, he gave a warning to his disciples before he left them. He said, you, you need to understand, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. And he told them in that passage over and over again, about 10 times in 11 verses, he said, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. Over and over, abide in me. Putting the emphasis on the heart, the relationship. Have you lost your first love this morning? Are you just checking the boxes, going through the motions? You're just doing, quote unquote, your duty, just marking time. And there's no real passion in your faith anymore. Well, what's the corrective action? What's the counsel that he gives? Look at verse 5. He gives them two words. First of all, remember. Remember from where you've fallen. You've got you've to miss the former days and want to go back to those former days again. Remember the days when you were growing. Remember when you opened God's Word and it was fresh. Remember when you couldn't wait for your prayer time. You remember when you were first saved. I mean, there you'd been walking about in life and you were so convicted. You didn't have peace with God. You didn't know what would happen to you if you died that day. And when you were born again, all of a sudden you just you had this sense of peace. And you knew that God had done a work in your life. And I mean, you, you just were aglow with that. And you couldn't wait to open up your Bible and, and learn. You couldn't wait to pray for those on your prayer list. You couldn't wait to share your faith with somebody. Man, you couldn't wait to go to church and worship with other believers. Remember how it used to be when you first got saved? He says, you've got to remember that. You've got to remember. You've got to desire those days again. But don't let it remain just a memory. He says, repent. Jesus is saying it's time to change. It's time to make a decision. It's time to go back. If there's ever been a point in your spiritual life where you are closer to the Lord than you are today, you need to go back to that point. 
Do the things you did at first. Jesus says, and if you don't, I'll remove your candlestick. Again, the church is the candlestick. Folks, all over there are churches through church history. There are church, con- contemporary churches around, contemporary times, current times around that used to be once great churches for the gospel. <clears throat> I'm not aware that theological problems or anything entered into the fellowship. They just... They just kind of lost their love, their passion. It's said that where, where Charles Spurgeon preached the Metro, Metropolitan Tabernacle in, in London, 10,000 people were coming weekly to hear him preach and they would take his sermons and, and they, would, they would transcribe them by hand and distribute 25,000 copies a week. 10,000 came to hear and 25,000 copies made. And this was before the day of all this technology we had today. They had to do it all by hand. And do you know until 1970, now fortunately since 70 there's been somewhat of a a revival or a resurrection in that church going on, a renewal. Uh, But before, between World War II and and 1970, do you know where, where Spurgeon preached? They said the crowd in their own history, they said that our, our own crowd got to where we just had a few people sitting on a couple of pews. That was all. They almost died. You see, a sense of duty can only sustain us for so long. What we do, we have to do out of a love for Christ. This morning, am I describing you, have you lost that first love? You're still here, still going through the motions, still a part of various things in your Christianity. But the heart's not there anymore. Jesus is saying, you better wake up before it's too late. Would you bow with me in prayer today, please? This morning, where are you? Do you need to go back? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? What's your quiet time been like recently? I can can tell you a lot about your Christian life if you described your quiet time to me. How about your fellowship with other Christians? Do you need to take that first step? First steps are so hard, but it gets easier after that, thankfully. Take that first step. Put yourself back in the place and the position of growing in the Lord again. Without a doubt, we'd have to say that as Christ looks at his church today, the first thing he's looking for is love. Do you love him? Is your labor a labor of love? Or has it become something less? God, speak to your people today. You know their needs. You know their heart. Draw people to yourself. I wonder if this passage is speaking to you. 
If you'd be honest and transparent enough to say, Pastor, this is a passage that speaks directly to me. I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. No doubt about that. I don't struggle with that. I know I'm saved. But I also know that I've lost my first love. I'm not really passionate about the Lord anymore. And what I do, I'm just kind of checking off the boxes. I'm going through the routine. If that's you this morning, every head bowed, nobody looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to have you come forward or unless you come on your own. But if I'm, if I'm speaking to you this morning, and that first love needs to be renewed, would you just quietly slip up your hand right where you're seated? Yes. Hands all over the congregation going up. Thank you. Lord, stir up that first love in me. I don't want to serve you just as a sense of duty or altness. I want it to be more than that. I want it to be love. God, would you help those who place their hands up in the air? Would you help them even this week to begin addressing things practically that they can do to draw near to you? Would you stir their hearts again? And Lord, for those who didn't lift their hands, I would assume they're saying that their walk with you is still on fire. They're passionate. And I believe you'd simply say to them, well done, keep on keeping on. Speak to your church. For the one who needs to come forward this morning and say, Pastor, there's never even been that time of first love. I've never, ever, ever become a believer. The Lord's been talking to me about that. I need to surrender my heart to Jesus and become a Christian. Lord, would you give them the courage this morning to make that public? Others who need to come forward and identify with the local body of believers as a church member and serve, speak to them. Help us all to return to our first love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.